the thing that we have to ensure where all of us, no matter where we sit, is to ensure that we have a level of understanding of self and when we're in need, being able to be comfortable enough to ask and come forward. And I think that level of diversity, that cultural humility will be built and sustained and then could be scaled no matter where we sit, whether it's in front of the classroom or behind in a desk. How do diversity, equity, and inclusion impact the nursing profession, especially nursing academia? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Donna Nikitas, the Dean of the Rutgers School of Nursing, Camden, as well as Executive Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs and Interim Provost, also at Rutgers University, Camden, right here on episode 406 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always, as most of you know, about you, your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, academia, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And guess what? You can now get CEUs from listening to nursing podcasts. That's right, over at rnegade.pro. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E. See how I did that? rnegade.pro. We're building a library of nursing podcasts offering continuing education credits, and a CE is available for listening to many episodes of The Nurse Keith Show and many other podcasts too. So head over to rnegay.pro, log into the portal. You can select me or any of the other content creators from the drop-down menu and get CEs because you know you're listening anyway, so you might as well earn continuing education while you do so. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, you can leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or anywhere else you happen to listen or just share the show with other people. You can head over to nursekeith.com to find the show notes in the drop down menu that says podcasts, or you can just find the show notes in any app where you happen to be listening. And as I said, we're joined here today with Dr. Donna Nikitas. She is the Dean of the Rutgers School of Nursing Camden and so much more. I mean, so very, very much more. Donna, you have the most stunning, rich nursing pedigree. It's just incredible. And it's really an honor to have you here today to talk about DEI. Well, thank you, Keith, for the opportunity to take time today to talk to you about a variety of issues important for nursing um, now and for the future. More importantly, um, in my space, in academia, it's critical. If we're going to prepare a future nursing workforce to be informed and educated, to be better prepared to care for their patients and themselves and the communities in which they come from, they have to acknowledge the ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but more importantly, to reconcile that for a long time, professional nursing has been occupied by women and white women. That's not diversity. And in order to do that, we have to embrace who we are. And we're doing it, but I think we need to do it more inclusively and recognize that it's not just race and gender and ableism, but diversity and it's all its parameters, but more importantly, how we could address structural racism that exists. It exists in the systems and societies in which we live, in which we practice. And so being sure that the workforce, those who are in schools of nursing recognize, they must appreciate who we are and where we've come from, but where we need to go. And so nursing in all its ramifications, particularly organized nursing, has taken on DEI um, 
really, you know, post-pandemic, but we've had to deal with it, obviously, uh, pre-pandemic, and we haven't at that point. I think pre-pandemic, it was there like an iceberg with the ice above the water, but we never really recognized the profound impact racism has had on our profession on the healthcare system and society in general. So I'm willing to explore this with you, but I think it is an opportunity to us to acknowledge it, embrace it, and recognize that we are beginning to say to ourselves and to others, we need to heal. And if we're going to heal this, we have to own this and we'll do it collectively, but a way that's informed then we work with our colleagues of color who've done who know this firsthand mm-hmm. and can walk with us and embrace us and hold us as we become fortified allies with them. Well said, fortified allies. I like that. And during the course of 2022, I had members of the National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing on my show. It was a two-part series. I had three members twice, so six different individuals from different organizations, including the ANA and other organizations on the show. And then just recently, just a few weeks ago on episode 403, I had Dr. G. Rumay Alexander, and she's the, the scholar in residence at the um, at the American Nurses Association, and she's the professor in the School of Nursing um, at the Uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So we've been talking about these issues and it's good to continue to talk about them. And you mentioned academia. So that is definitely a place that is close to your heart because you're steeped in academia. You're a doctorally prepared nurse, you're a dean, you're a professor. You've, You've seen I think every aspect of what nursing academia can offer. And I was looking first, I'll just say, I was looking at a 2020 survey by the National Council of State Boards of Nursing and the Forum of State Nursing Workforce Centers. And it said that nurses from quote unquote minority backgrounds represent 19.4% of the registered nurse workforce. And that the, the workforce in general of RNs, this isn't counting LPNs, of course, this is RNs. It's 80% white, uh, 6.7% black, and then from there, actually 7.2% Asian. So what's your take on how we're doing just in terms of nursing itself representing the populations that we serve proportionally? We can do better. And we are doing better. And the reason I say we are doing better because we are um, looking at our admissions more holistically, not just in the traditional ways that we've done it through testing and GPA, but looking at students in a more holistic way on what they bring to their preparation when they want to enter a professional program and what it will take to sustain and support them so that they can progress and and graduate. So that's a good thing. The problem is, is that we have uh, a limited number of spaces in schools of nursing where we have many more applicants and not a sufficient number of faculty. We're going to get there. But there's also been other barriers, such as financial barriers, where not everyone is able or, or available and where they are situated across the country that they have access to community colleges or four-year colleges where they can do the funding. I'm happy to say in the state of New York, a state of New Jersey, rather, that the state government has worked with public health public universities in particular about putting up what they call Garden State grants to foster and support beyond Pell individuals who are on lower socioeconomic um, areas in which they don't have the financial well-being to go all the way through. So, so we're breaking down those barriers, but we don't look representative of the population. We are at Rutgers Camden, a minority standing university, soon to become a Hispanic standing institution as well. And it's where we are situated. But 
that being said, what could we do? Um, make sure that elementary school, middle-aged school students, and high school students begin to appreciate the importance of a well-prepared health workforce, not just nursing. Not everyone who wants to be a nurse will be a nurse or will graduate as a nurse for whatever reasons. But there is an opportunity to make sure that our society, as we age and more baby boomers come up in 2020, 30, it's supposed to get up to around 70 million. But that being said, that they have individuals in the workforce, health workforce, and particularly that look like them and represents the cultures of which they come from. So that's why we need diversity. We can't have the same whole, same whole. We have to make sure that, that the biases that exist still on behalf of the provider are reduced. And we do that by making sure the workforce has a culture of humility and understanding of what diversity looks like and what it sounds like. And so so if you have a provider, hopefully you can have a provider that looks like you and speaks like you mm-hmm. and carries the same core values that you have. And so we're doing better, but we're not there yet. And I think your numbers are important to inform the audience who's listening to us today that we don't have to wait to get to graduating juniors and seniors, that now more than ever, I think through the recent release of the 2020-2030 Future of Nursing Report, Advancing Health Equity emphasizes that nurses play an essential part in that equity component. And we have to do a better job at the academic level, meaning schools of nursing, that we make sure that we enroll a very diverse student body. Well said. There's a lot to unpack in what you shared. I love that you use the word humility. You were talking about the core values that are sort of the underpinning of what we do and how we do it and how we approach people. And I think it is important for patients to have the opportunity to have providers who look like them and come from cultures like them. And I think there's plenty of research out there that show that patients do better and there are better outcomes when providers are more apt to look like them and understand them from that certain perspective. And I'm glad you mentioned not just race, but you mentioned socioeconomic backgrounds because, you know, class is an issue that doesn't get discussed a whole lot. In the United States, we have been quite focused on race, which I think is important. It's so important. But I think class is something that just doesn't get brought up much. And socioeconomic disparities cut across pretty much all racial backgrounds, including Caucasian people. So, you know, we have pockets of poverty or at least low socioeconomic status everywhere we look. And it's not just in the cities anymore, like people used to talk about the inner city, you know, but we see poverty in rural areas. We see it in the suburbs, the 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 exurbs or whatever they call it now, you know, all these different strata of the United States society. And you you mentioned that need to diversify the student body. And I know there's a lot of conversations in academia about, you know, how do we do that? And what do you feel like are the the approaches in academia that are useful and effective and fair in terms of making sure we have a more diverse student body? How do you how do you operationalize that? In several ways. Before I go back and talk about the student, let's just go back to talk about the patient-centered focus for the workforce. And the easiest way to address this issue of equity in health um, is to just ask individual patients, families, communities, and populations of which we interact with is, what what do I need to know about you? What do I need to know to ensure that we're when we're in a conversation with one another, managing your care 
here at this moment in this interaction and then moving forward, what do I need to be prepared? So what I share in, in line aligns with your own personal values and needs. And then I would say to you, Keith, I would take the same framework and situate that for the student as I would for the faculty. So let's go with the student first. We don't know those students day one when they sit up in the classroom. We think we know them on an application to the best that we could. Sometimes we know them through preliminary screening uh, with some basic understandings of core curriculum so that they can succeed. But it's not until that first encounter when we see them face to face. And if that instructor standing in front of the classroom doesn't look like you or sound like you, um, there's a differential. And the best way that the faculty member could embrace all students who stand in, they stand in front of is, if not today, you're we have a variety of ways in which we can communicate. Obviously, I'm standing in front of you. That's a face-to-face -face encounter. Let me remind you, you're looking at a syllabus, but that syllabus doesn't include everything. It includes that which you need to work to complete the course, but also that which I know, need to know about you as you engage the course. And if I'm missing something and you need something, the first lesson in becoming a professional nurse is to understand the role of advocacy, hmm. first for self and then others. So you position yourself from strength from the very beginning. We all don't begin at the same place. You're an expert here today interviewing me in my space of knowledge acquisition and practice. But there may be some other things that you may not be aware of or I may not be aware of you. So when we you engage in a conversation, you want to show a level of interaction and appreciation. So I may say to you, um, Keith, you need to slow down. Let me think about the kind of way you're asking these questions to make sure I'm understanding and I'm listening astutely. And for some students, that's a very, very big ask for them. They don't mm -hmm. know how to, whether they're very internally focused or externally focused, that changes that. You mentioned that. Uh, socioeconomic, please. I don't know if you had enough money to come to class on a bus or a train or that you don't have lunch in your lap backpack or you don't have money even to buy lunch. You know, so there's a lot of things I don't know that I'm second guessing. And so, you know, we can talk personally. You can see me in office hours, virtual hours. I'll engage you online through discussion boards, but we can't assume we know everything about everyone. And sometimes, depending on where you come from or what you've been schooled in, you don't have that self-efficacy, that, that confidence to say, you know, I'm struggling here. I'm a week or two in. I didn't get the book. I'm falling behind. Something else happened at home. And of course, this all escalated more during COVID. So at the end of the day, I'm saying we can't be second guessing. The thing that we have to ensure where all of us, no matter where we sit, is to ensure that we have a level of understanding of self and when we're in need, being able to com be comfortable enough to ask and come forward. And I think that level of diversity, that cultural humility will be built and sustained and then could be scaled no matter where we sit, whether it's in front of the classroom or behind in a desk. Mm, that's really interesting. So if we want our nursing educators to approach their students in this particular way, which sounds fantastic. And I'm sure there are many who do. And I'm sure there are many at your institution under your guidance who do this. How do we train those nursing educators during their education so that they approach educating new, you know, emerging nurses in that particular way? Is there, is there a core, um, is there a core curriculum or core curricula that are starting to be used in more academic settings so that nursing educators learn this type of approach? I would hope so, but I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues. I can say mm -hmm. um, 
as dean, and let me just remind you right now, I'm sitting as an interim provost role as well, but as dean, I made it my uh, commitment to ensure that the faculty that I recruited and who we brought on to be part of our our, our, our school and our unit is, do they feel like it's a home for them? And what does home look like? Home feels like you're welcomed. Home feels like you understand the work environment, the work culture and climate. Now, those are two separate things, but well, you know what home feels like. You could take off your shoes, but in some cases you keep them on, but they're comfortable to walk around mm-hmm. and that you find what you need, whether the, the resources are scarce or not, you could find them or find someone who will point you in the right direction. So um, I want to make sure that they exist, but they don't always do. Um, and the way you get around that is to do what you say, offer these kinds of podcast programs so individuals can be informed and learn more, um, have these conversations through continuing education and professional development. As you know, the American Nurses, nursing, um, American Nurses Association and other professional nursing associations, including the Black Nurses, the Hispanic Nurses, the Filipino Nurses Society and organizations have done well to organize and support. And I just wrote a recent editorial on nursing economics called Reimagining Mentoring Through Inclusion and Difference, a Professional Necessity. We have to mentor not just our faculty, especially your early career, but we have to mentor faculty mid-career and senior career as well. And one of the things that I do like when I, um, I am and have very strong faculty who really commit especially our faculty of color, supporting their minority students, their students in the classroom, they make and they make time for them to settle, to grow and, and develop. This I'm not interim provost because I woke up one morning and I said I wanted to be that. I didn't even know what a provost was, but neither did I grow up and, and decide I wanted to be dean. You grow professionally as you aspire and and are inspired by others. And that's why you have to walk the walk and talk the talk. And you have to find people who will walk with you. And for particularly nurses like myself, large academic institutions, nurses who are deans and chief um, operating officers who, who are Caucasian have to make sure that they surround themselves and they build a team of leaders who are intentionally diverse so that when they serve either their students, their faculty and or their patients, they have clinicians and educators who are representative of the populations in which they care for. Mm. So I hope I answered your question. You did. You did. So it has to be a multifaceted approach to how we educate, cajole, inspire <laughs> our our faculty and also our rank and file nurses and through the educational process and extra, I guess we call it extracurricular activities, um, um, continuing education, podcasts, articles, etc. Those are other ways we can bring in other voices and We've had, we've had a complex last few years. We've had the COVID-19 pandemic and the health disparities that that didn't uncover, but maybe highlighted or threw into relief so that they were just in our face and there was not much we could do about it because it was right there and we couldn't deny it, right? The racial disparities of the, that we saw throughout the pandemic. So there's a lot of different pieces here that need to be pulled together. And recently in 2022, you published an article in Nursing Outlook. It's volume 70, issue six. Mm -hmm. And it's that's the November, December 2022 issue of Nursing Outlook. And it's called A Policy Pathway, Nursing's Role in Advancing Diversity and Health Equity. You were the lead author it was also Kevin Emmons and Kupiri Ackerman Barger. So tell us a little bit about 
this approach and this whole notion of of policy and how we can bring policy into this conversation. Right. So I think what policy does, it provides a way for us to develop our strengths as nurses through our voice and visibility, but to be impactful. So if you really want to make change, you can talk a lot about it. But unless you are roll up the sleeves and figure out the pathway to it, and it, there's a variety of pathways, obviously, to accomplish policy, it's not only legislative in the House of Representatives, both at the federal level or within your state house, if you for your regional representative or locally um, through you, the mayors or where you sit. That's when people think policy, they think more traditionally. But in the profession mm-hmm. of nursing, obviously, we're a regulated profession. You've talked about um, some of the organizations that are involved in the work that we do. There's a responsibility in that policy that regulates our practice. It provides the procedures the processes, of course, policies to to guarantee safe patient outcomes and quality of professionals. But to advance the work of the profession, you need the policy. You need to be able to figure out where you are, what table you sit at, and what what can you do. So obviously, from working where you are, this whole notion of working through the media Mm -hmm. as a source of policy, because you bring to the table, as you have mentioned to me earlier, individuals who were involved in the work around DEI, particularly the American Amer- American uh, Nurses Association in their framework, working with a multitude of organizations to say, you know, what are the issues and how do we tackle them? You know, people want to take issues and find solutions, but that's the hard work. That's the messy work. And what we were trying to do in this particular article was to show nurses how to be bold in the policy process. How can they promote the concepts of diversity, equity, inclusion in in belonging to advance health equity and what would more equitable just society look like? And in this article, we do frame out a COVID exemplar that Kevin Emmons was involved in here in the state of New Jersey. But more importantly to say, for healthcare to be a human right, we need to be able to ensure not just access, but equitable access and to break down barriers where individuals may not be able to have the services they need depending on their geographical locations or where they live, work or play, and how could we make it Um, more equitable for them. So basically what we did with this manuscript here is to show that in order to be involved with policy, how can you approach it? And we talk it from an academic perspective, a clinical practice perspective, and um, more procedurally why it's really important to be part of the process. Mm-hmm. And you talk about in the in the article, I'm looking at the conclusion right now, mm-hmm. and you talk about professional nursing and nurses getting into, quote unquote, good, necessary trouble as they tackle issues of social and environmental justice, community engagement, and access to high quality and universal health care for all. So What's your definition, I'm just curious, of good, necessary trouble? What does that look like? And could you, do you want to give an example of what that could be for someone? Sure. Um, Certainly, it's going out of your own comfort zone. Sometimes you don't have to ask permission. Sometimes you have to go out and find what you recognize and know that you can help make a difference. So um, as an example, um, I when I first came to Camden, New Jersey, um, the Michaels Corporation was rebuilding um, housing in the in South Camden, and when they did that, they created not a high toll story building, but much too lower two story uh, housing for vulnerable and marginalized individuals in a two level housing development for older adults and single heads of household with children and what they did within that housing facility was create working with the Camden Housing Authority a clinic 
And that clinic was built for the Rutgers School of Nursing. But when I first went there, we weren't really occupying it. And we decided that one way we can engage the residents is to put nursing students with their nursing faculty in that health clinic for community health nursing. And so the beginning, it was basically patient education information, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, Mm -hmm. obesity childhood diseases and so on and so forth, mostly educational. By the time we came around to the second semester, we put DMP nursing students with the faculty and started to do health physicals, free health physicals for kids who needed to go to camp and kids who needed to go to college and kids who needed to return to school. That was back in 2019. We did somewhere a little bit closer to 1995 physicals. Well, by showing up and building capacity and learning to work with community residents, this past academic fall, we did over 390 physicals. We started much earlier in August. In fact, Mm -hmm. what happened was the Camden District School District reached out to our our professor, Kathy Pahoda, and um, said, could you help us out with some school physicals? We're a little bit behind. Well, we did a couple in early August, and then we worked on Memorial uh, Labor Day weekend, and it just kept coming and coming until this semester. We're picking up very shortly um, in the next two weeks. But goes back to your point of how do you get involved? Mm-hmm. Well, we think the answer to health equity is community engagement, mm-hmm. is being socially and civic responsible. Now, does it have to be an academic institution? No. Many of our, uh, through COVID, we had the opportunity to work with our community organizations, such as Cooper University Hospital, the Camden County Department of Health, players who were great partners, but distant partners. And because of COVID, we realized we couldn't stand alone in this space by ourselves to tackle this um, pandemic, but together we could. And even to today, today, we have locked hands, stood together and continue to do education, information and vaccination as a community, not by a sole organization. And now again, when you become reliable, responsible, and you show up when people need you, regardless, that's how policy begins to develop, is secured, sustained, and then scaled. And I think that's what I mean by good trouble. Mm. You have to follow it. I love that. I like that. I like that. And when when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk a little bit about your career and your storied career and all the various worlds in which you've moved over the decades. And I'd also like to dig a little bit more into, we've talked about what schools can do. We've talked about you know what we can do on the policy level. And I also want to talk a little bit about what individual nurses can do. You know, what actions can they take on their own, maybe apart from their employer or apart from a school of nursing? So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, too. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Donna Nikitas, the dean of the Rutgers School of Nursing Camden, right here in episode 406 of The Nurse Keith Show. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod, Dr. Donna Nikitas. She is the Dean of Rutgers School of Nursing Camden, Executive Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs, and the Interim Provost at Rutgers University Camden. So Dr. Nikitas, this has been fascinating and I want to dive in a little bit more. And first of all, I just want to talk about the fact that you're a successful academic, right? You have a doctor, you're doctorally prepared. You started with an associate degree. So you've worked your way through the academic circles to get to where you are. You're also a retired major in the U.S. Air Force Nurse Reserve Corps. What 
brought you to the nurse reserve corps and how has that impacted the way that you look at the world and you look at nursing and nursing education? Thank you, Keith, for that question. And what I would say to you, when I was an undergraduate student at the City University of New York in Brooklyn, New York, at Kingsborough Community College, um, it was free when I went to undergraduate nursing school. Oh. It was free. But I still had to pay for books and uniforms and supplies. And I ended up getting a, a scholarship from a local American Legion organization. And it was a lot of money then. It was, I think, $250 every semester for my two years as an undergraduate nursing student. And I think I had to write some kind of an essay for that. And I just began to appreciate, you know, what that organization did and what they were able to provide for me as a beginning student. So I had a very early commitment as a youngster to want to be an activist. I was a volunteer in college and I volunteered in my community. And when I went from nursing school as an associate, I went immediately right on to a baccalaureate degree because my nursing instructors then believed that the pathway to excel in your career was to have an undergraduate baccalaureate degree in nursing. And I was out in Stony Brook and I was working as a part-time RN nurse on an evening ship shift um, on a medical surgical unit. And I met a colleague and we were talking, I remember this, talking one night. So what are you going to do when you finish? You know, she was going on for her baccalaureate. I said, I don't really know, but I'm really interesting, interested in, in exploring some opportunities. And I don't know how we got on the conversation, but we decided that we would want to join the United States Air Force Nurse Corps. And we hmm. Upon completion of our graduation from our undergraduate program, I went directly into the United States Nurse Corps as a second lieutenant. I left New York and ended up going to Rapid City, South Dakota on a military base. And I served in the plains of the Midwest. Now, why is that important? Well, I grew up in a very small Italian family in Brooklyn, family and grandparents very, very close. And I never left the state. If we went on a family vacation, we went in a car. So I was never on a plane before. Mm -hmm. And that adventure, going across the country, living and learning about Native Americans, because South Dakota has its own um, Sioux Indians, and sure. a variety of other um, opportunities of being, being in flat plains area, most predominantly farms mm. at then, was formative for me in understanding, I use the term cultural humility, understanding a culture that was very, very foreign to me as a young girl. Upon completing my three years of active duty Air Force, I returned to New York and got a back, went on and got a master's full-time at New York University on my GI Bill. And up until this point, I was a public, publicly educated and employed by public institutions. This was a federal government. While I was going to NYU, I was working part-time. And then when I graduated, I ended up working at Bellevue Hospital Medical Center as a master prepared nurse. And I tell you, um, it was an experience to come off active duty and to serve one of the largest public hospitals in New York City. Um, and it was quite inspiring. And from then, I, I worked at Bellevue for about four or five years and then was recruited hmm. to Hunter College. And that's how I be, got involved in academia. Wow. That's quite an interesting story and and it's great how when you went to the the west to the midwest you were exposed to cultures that were completely new to you being from an italian family in brooklyn and you know my my parents came from jewish families in brooklyn so you know when you break out of that world that's that's pretty eye opening especially as a young person and i also wanted to point out something that i haven't I don't think I've mentioned yet, is that you're the editor of the journal Nursing Economics. And Nursing Econom Economics has a certain mission. What, what does Nursing Economics 
want to accomplish? What is that journal all about? I would simply say that our mission is to advance nursing leadership in healthcare because that's the segment of the population we look to focus on with looking at how we can provide information and thoughtful analysis of current and emerging best practices in healthcare management, along with the understanding of the importance of economics and policy making. And the journal supports nurses and others who are responsible for really directing nursing's impact on healthcare costs and quality outcomes. And I'm excited to share with you that this year that just ended in 2022, we celebrated 40 years of the journal's history and publication. And in those 40 years, there's only been four editors. In my pre- the previous editor who mentored me was, was Connie Curran. She was the third editor. And one of the things that she understand, she provided me to have a better understanding in is this whole notion of using your words to change the world. Just as you use your words in your podcast to inform and change nurses' understanding of the world in which they um, find themselves. But understanding that world, that you can make a difference. And so Mm -hmm. in my work as an editor, there are several things that I do. One of the things that Connie emphasizes, how do we make sure that nurses can make a business case for caring? Not just what we you know, what healthcare costs, but the implications of nursing care and its outcomes makes a difference. When we lower the cost and we can improve the the outcomes, we make a difference to the patients, families, and communities that we care for. And so the journal really centers on the work that we do and how do we do it. So we do it by having a well-prepared nursing workforce. We do it in ensuring that Healthcare leaders, particularly nurse executives and leadership, understand their scope of work and the authority that they have and that they become accountable for those that they serve. And more importantly, do they understand the measures and metrics of the work that we do? Because it's the data that will help you drive the decision. So that's really the scope of the journal. And I think that we've done it very successfully. I'm looking forward for you to receiving the November, December issue because Peter Beerhouse, um, one of our editorial board members, Carlene Kerfoot, interviews Peter and he talks about, you know, what are the challenges um, we're going to be looking upstream for as we move forward post-pandemic in in nursing. And so um, that I do like about being editor is it gives me the opportunity to use the space. I don't want to say a bully pulpit because that's not what it is. It's a space mm-hmm. where I could take on issues that I believe are provocative and I can provide a balanced, informed approach, that's the academic in me, uh, to ensure that the audience, whether they're undergraduate, graduate, or doctoral students, or nurse leaders who read, are informed and stay informed. Mm -hmm. We just don't want the public to trust us, but we want them to trust us and to, to ensure that we are providing them the best possible care for themselves Mm. and for those who they're involved with as well. That's a great encapsulation of, of a really important journal and the mission. And I have a personal question for you, Donna, do you sleep? Yes, I do. (laughs) You too. I do. I just, based on, I mean, what you do at, at Rutgers, Dean of the School of Nursing, executive vice chancellor of academic affairs, interim provost at the university, editor of the journal Nursing Economics, and all the other work that you do. I just, where do you find time to, for your own personal enjoyment and life? I make it a priority. So I talk, one thing that I do is um, each day, I make time for me. And what does that look like? That's time to pray. Mm -hmm. 
that's time to exercise, which I do daily, religiously, 30 minutes a day. That sometimes it makes, means making waking up a little earlier than I'd like to, but I do. And then making sure that I, I my, my nutrition is well-balanced. Does that always happen? No. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when much is given, much is asked. Mm-hmm. Is it, Do I make sacrifices? I absolutely do. Mm-hmm. But I try to stay close to the things that I believe in. That's my faith, my family, um, and those that I work with and I honor and respect them, which means that I must honor and respect what I'm able to do when I'm asked to serve. And so, yeah, I have a lot of energy. I've Mm -hmm. always been that. That's part of who I am, my DNA. That's obvious. But I do try to make it a priority that I can't give others what I cannot give myself. Mm. Well, that's great because you're a role model as a academic, as a leader, you know, as a professor, you know, you serve as a role model for other educators and also the students. So I think that's great that you try to walk that talk. And before we, we end, I have a few more questions for you, but I read in your bio that you have this wholehearted belief that nurses serve society and do public good by advancing health, driving public policy, and promoting access to quality patient-centered care. And it seems to me that in all these different hats that you wear, that seems to be a pretty much the guiding principle of everything that you do, everything we've talked about. Don't you think that is sort of core to who you are? Yes, it's a walk that I take daily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I often my students or my faculty will say, well, you're so busy. But mm-hmm. when they need me mm-hmm. and they want to, I make myself available. I remember just uh, I'm working on a grant now for the for AmeriCorps, for the state of New Jersey. And I'm working with two full-time AmeriCorps students. And they're mm-hmm. terrific. And um they asked me once, well, do you have time for coffee? And I said, absolutely. And I ended up taking them to a coffee shop and having some coffee. And, they, and I said to them, you know, I'm so amazed that you would ask me. And they said, why? I said, well, I did. I would never think of asking. Now, I'm, I'm the program director, obviously, but I would be, never be asking, you know, to sit with the dean or sit with the interim provost for a cup of coffee. And, you know, what you've just said is... It's a role modeling. I mean, how would you know what a provost or a dean does if you never have a conversation? True. So it's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's the beauty, I think, about being a nurse that we learned very early on in our careers out of how to build effective communications with others, relationships with others. Mm-hmm. And that is learning how to communicate and listen. That's That's lovely. So as we wind down, I have four quick questions I ask all my guests, and they're not really related to your job per se or what we've been talking about. Are you up for a lightning round? Oh, I love them. I've done them before. Absolutely. Let's go for it. So number one is how do you define success personally and or professionally? I I would say that um, if I have a goal that I aspire and I make it manageable and I achieve it, I feel that's success. Mm -hmm. Good. That's lovely. Okay. Number two, could you name, or if you don't want to name them, just describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life. They can be living or dead, famous, or just someone you know who none of us would ever have known. Hmm. Love the question. I can think of so many, but um, I there's been a lot of mentors, and one um, who I speak of is, is actually probably two. One, Connie Vance, a former professor of mine at uh, NYU, and we're still colleagues. She was a mentor for me as a graduate student, but now we call ourselves peer mentors. I'd probably say Kevin uh, Kevel Fredrickson, another mentor of mine, and and certainly probably my mother, who told me taught me patience and how to be a good cook, and food is important to us. And so you know, my core values. I mentioned family. I mentioned faith, but I'll also mention food. So that's pretty important. So I'll leave it at that. That's great. Well, 
coming from an Italian family in Brooklyn, that would make a lot of sense. Um, third question, penultimate question. Is there a book or even a movie? It doesn't have to be an absolute favorite that's had an impact on the way you think or maybe the way you live your life. I would say there's a series, there's a British series called Call the Midwives. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my clinical area of practice. I was oh. a maternal and child health nurse. And I think those, the practice of a midwife, of birthing a child and bringing a child into the world and providing that support for that young family, that childbearing family, I would say that's terrific. Now, that goes back to Lillian Wall. So Lillian Wall is my most favorite heroine. She was a public health nurse. And I think when I think of my work now, when I mentioned very early on the importance of community engagement, that's rooted in the work of Lillian Wall. And it's rooted in the work of midwives. Yes. I've I've seen the first season of Call the Midwives. I'm glad you mentioned it because no one has yet. And Lillian Wald, I believe she was the founder of the Henry Street Settlement. That's which, correct. Which on continues the on the Lower East Side, which continues to this day. So I think Absolutely. that's yeah, she's she is a a giant, um, mm-hmm. to say the least. Last question. What is one piece of advice you would give 18-year-old Donna? right now, whether you think she'd listen or not? Mm, I hope she would listen. I hope so, but too. It would go, I would go back to something that I said. To not just survive, but to thrive in today's society, you need to have some real resilience, belief in oneself, and to, again, self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is, is, can I cope? Can I move? How do I move forward? So the lesson to be remembered, if you get stuck and you can't move, find out who will help you move along. It could be a parent. It can be a sibling. It can be a teacher. It can be a pastor or some other faith minister, but there has to be someone. And the important lesson is you are never alone. And if you feel alone, know who your buddy is or who there's someone you can go to at any moment in time. Mm. You have to walk this walk with someone. And remember those someones who come in, they come into your life for a reason. And when they come in to your life, Hold on to their hand until you are ready to let go. And when you let go, then you know you're ready for the next transition. Wow, that's a mic drop if I've ever heard one. I bet she'd listen. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Dr. Nikitas, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. You're an inspiring nursing figure. You're a new hero for me. And um, it's been such an honor to have you here on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or any app where you happen to listen. If you need personalized holistic career coaching as a nurse, look no further than nursekeith.com. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. Remember to go to rnegade.pro. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro. Log into the portal to get CEUs for listening to nursing podcasts. And remember that we are members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote. This one is by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Dr. Donna Nikitas saying arrivederci from... Rutgers Camden, Camden, New Jersey. Thank you. Rutgers Camden, Camden, New Jersey, the state of my birth. Thank you, Dr. Nikitas. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. Flip side.